Well, good morning. I always enjoy coming to Ocean City and getting reacquainted with some of you and meeting some new friends. And it's such a thrill today to hear Ken Medema. Uh, but I have to admit, almost every time I come, I feel like I begin with two strikes against me. Number one, I'm from Kentucky. And Kentucky has a reputation of being a backward state, and I've got to overcome that. Number two, I'm getting to be an older man. I'm going to turn 72 here in just a couple of months. And people begin to question whether somebody who reaches that age can still think and be clear and communicate. I heard about, I heard about three guys who have been friends for years, and they learned accidentally one day that they all shared the same birthday. They said, we're all turning 50 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. I understand they have some pretty waitresses there. So they did. Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 60 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They've got some good food down there. (laughs) Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 70 on the same day. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. They got a wheelchair ramp down there. (laughs) Ten years later, they said, you know, we're all turning 80 together. Let's celebrate together. Where should we go? Let's go to that restaurant down by the river. We've never been there before. (laughs) But even though though I'm from Kentucky and even though I'm getting older, I hope you'll listen today because I want to talk with you about what I think is a really important subject. I want to talk about the need for a radical faith today. In this age when radical Muslims are beheading people in order to advance their extreme agenda, We need some radical Christians who are willing to die to self to advance the cause of Christ. As Ken Medema sang, we need fools who will live by another rule. You know, my generation grew up in an era where it was comfortable to have faith in Christ. There was just kind of a contented faith. Even people who didn't go to church believed there was a common moral consensus. And the nation was favorable to Christianity. But over the last 50 years, our nation has moved rapidly from being a pro-Christian nation to a neutral nation. And now we're rapidly becoming a nation that is hostile to Christian faith. Several years ago, I wrote a book about our church, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was entitled, When God Builds a Church. My publisher lined up a number of radio and television interviews. I'd go into the studio and the host or hostess would ask some softball questions and I'd promote the book. I walked into a local PBS station forgetting about their rather liberal bias and the hostess began the program that day by saying, our special guest today is the Reverend Bob Russell, minister of the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the largest churches in the nation. But some say the church is homophobic. Some say the church is anti-Semitic. Some say the church is hostile to women. Some even say the church is a cult. We're going to be talking about those things when we come right back. (laughs) Well, I didn't want to come right back. I wanted to go right home. And even though none of those accusations was remotely true about our church, I spent the next hour and a half on the defensive fielding one hostile question after another. When I walked out of there kind of like a whipped puppy, I thought, you know, this is not the same country spiritually in which 
I grew up. We could spend the entire morning citing examples of CEOs who have been forced to resign, restaurant chains that have been boycotted, bakers fined, teachers fired, because they dared to speak out about biblical marriage or about intelligent design or religious freedom. The Bible says in the last days there will be perilous times that come. And spiritually, these are becoming increasingly perilous times for believers. As Christians are being vilified and marginalized and sometimes persecuted for their faith. And if we're going to survive in the future as believers, more importantly, if we're going to be effective in sharing the gospel with our friends and passing it along to the next generation, we've got to have a whole lot more than a comfortable faith. We need a faith that is radical in the eyes of the world and maybe radical in the eyes of some who are just content to attend church. That's why there have been a, there has been a series of best-selling books in recent years calling Christians to a deeper commitment. David Platt wrote the book Radical, Taking Back Our Faith from the American Dream. Kyle Eidemann of our church wrote a best-selling book called Not a Fan. He said, I'm not a casual fan of Jesus. I'm a totally devoted, devoted follower. And Francis Chan wrote another bestseller, Crazy Love, with the same theme. That we can't be satisfied with a lukewarm faith. We've got to have a faith that is radical, on fire for Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus called us to a radical faith. Listen to what he said in Luke, the ninth chapter, beginning with verse 22. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now there are two basic truths that I see in this passage that should be extremely important to us. One has to do with our belief. The other has to do with our behavior. And only when we capture the radical nature of these two truths are we going to be really ready to face the challenges that are coming in the future. The first is this. A radical faith follows Jesus exclusively. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me. Understand, if you choose to follow Jesus Christ... He demands exclusive allegiance. Jesus made some pretty radical claims. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Understand, folks, that the first century Christians were persecuted not because they believed that Jesus was a compassionate leader. They were persecuted not because they believed that Jesus was a God. Because the Roman Empire had many gods, one more probably wouldn't have disturbed them. They were persecuted because they believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is the only God and all other gods are false gods. And that's why they were thrown into prison and executed. Simon Peter said in Acts the fourth chapter verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now that same truth claim 
seems radical to our world today. Because in this multicultural philosophy of this age, we don't believe in absolutes anymore. And we believe that every religion is just as good as another. And it's okay, the world will say, it's okay if you want to come into the tabernacle and worship Jesus. That's fine if it's good for you. Just don't try to impose your values or your beliefs. Don't try to proselyte anybody else. Oprah Winfrey, who's one of the chief spokespersons for this philosophy, said, There are many ways to God. You need to be tolerant of all faiths because one is just as good as another. So if you insist that Jesus is God in the flesh and he's the only way to salvation, you're going to be labeled a bigot, a hater, and a radical. But you know what? Christianity is at one and the same time the most inclusive and the most exclusive of all religions. It's the most inclusive because whosoever will may come. There's nobody who's barred. But it is the most exclusive in that Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, said, the reason people get upset if you say there's only one way to God is because it's God's way and not man's way and men are in rebellion against God. If God had provided two ways to salvation, he said, people would be upset that there weren't three. If he provided ten, they'd be upset that there weren't eleven. Do you remember about five years ago, back in 2010, when 33 miners in Chile were trapped underground a half mile for 69 days in this copper and gold mine? There was a cave in, and they were trapped in this cavern, and they soon discovered that they thought everybody was dead. They discovered these guys were alive and began to communicate with them and gave them hope. I can't think of a more frightening experience. I'm kind of claustrophobic. To be a half mile underground and trapped in darkness like that with no way out would be horrible. Well, they called in some special drilling equipment from the United States, and slowly they drilled a half mile deep through rock, 69 days, and eventually they broke through and were able to lower a rescue vessel, and they brought them all out. Can you imagine being in that cavern, and the rescue vessel comes down the first time, anybody saying, is this the only way out? I think I'm going to wait for another way. I'm going to look for another way. There can't be just one way out. No, they jumped at the opportunity, ecstatic to get out. And if you saw on television, you know when they reached the surface, they just celebrated and embraced their family, were so joyful to be saved. That is a picture of our condition spiritually apart from God. The Bible says we're without hope, without God in the world. We are dead in trespasses and sins, destined to spend eternity without God. But Jesus came as the rescuer. He came to seek and save the lost. And only Jesus claimed to be God and then proved it by performing undeniable miracles. Only Jesus died a sacrificial atoning death for us on the cross. His death was not a martyr's death. It was a vicarious death. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Only Jesus came back from the grave saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You can go to the tomb of every other religious founder and the words are inscribed, here he lies. But you go to the tomb of Jesus Christ and the words of the angel ring out in your ears. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is living just as he said that he would. Only Jesus can say, I'm the resurrection. Believe in me and you will live. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? But that seems radical in the eyes of the world. The second truth is this. A radical faith demands a lifestyle of self-denial. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, 
He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, what does that mean in a practical way? To follow Christ is more than saying, I believe in Jesus. It's more than mental assent. It is denying our carnal desires. Now, that seems radical to the world that believes in gratifying the desires of the flesh. The world says, if it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. You've got to be yourself. If the chemistry's right, go for it. And the world is dumbfounded when a guy like football player Tim Tebow, a bachelor, says that he's intending to remain celibate until he gets married. That's so radical. That's so unnatural in the world. Bill Maher, the HBO comedian, made fun of Tim Tebow. Now, Bill Maher makes fun of anybody who believes the Bible, makes fun of anybody who believes in Jesus. Uh, He had a host, a guest the other day, and he said, now what does your imaginary friend Jesus have to say about that? I'm like my friend Wayne Smith. Wayne says, you know, I know the Bible says we're supposed to love everybody, but if God ever changes that rule, I got my guy picked out. And Bill Maher's kind of hard for me to love. But when he found out Tim Tebow was making this statement about he's going to remain pure until he gets married, he called Tim Tebow a homeschool nerd. Radical. Romans 13, 14 says, Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't even think about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. 2 Peter 2, 11 says, Abstain from the evil desires that war against your soul. Folks, we need all of us understand we have two natures within us that are vying for control of our lives. On the one hand, we're created in the image of God, and we just want to do God-like things. We, we, we want to do the good thing. But on the other hand, we have been polluted by the sin of Adam, and we naturally gravitate toward things that are evil. David said in the Old Testament, Surely I was sinful from birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 7, I know that in me, that is in my sinful nature, there dwells no good thing. We have what J. Wallace Hamilton calls horns and halos in human nature. What Robert Louis Stevenson called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What the Bible calls the flesh and the spirit. And these two natures are battling for control all all the time. And left unrestrained... The evil will take over just as a bruised apple will eventually turn rotten. How else can you explain a guy like CBS or NBC news anchor Brian Williams who can be so likable and dependable, but then he turns around and is dishonest about his helicopter being shot at in Iraq? Or how else do you explain a guy like Bruce Jenner who confesses in an interview with Diane Sawyer Though a great athlete, when he was young, he at times wished he were a woman. And so now he's transgendering, but he confesses that he still finds women attractive. How strange. Well, Craig Massey said, two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, but the one I feed will dominate. Galatians, the sixth chapter The fifth chapter, verse 16 says, Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. 
So a radical faith acknowledges this battle. And it says, I'm going to deny my carnal nature so that I can follow Jesus Christ. Listen, if you just do what you instinctively want to do every day, you're going to hurt a lot of people. And you're going to wind up hurting yourself. Jesus said, you, you seek to find your life, you're going to lose it. Just ask football player Ray Rice, who felt like hitting his fiance, kicked out of the league. Or ask politician Anthony Weiner, who felt like sending inappropriate texts to women who were not his wife, lost his political career. Or ask Lindsay Lohan, who felt like doing drugs and alcohol. It just got her into a string of, of problems. On the other hand, if you deny self, you deny the carnal natures, and you do what is right, Jesus said you'll find yourself. William James is said to be the father of modern psychology, and he said a lot of goofy things. But I like one thing he said. He said, if you act the way you wish you felt, eventually you'll feel the way you act. In other words, it's a lot easier to act yourself in the way of feeling than to feel yourself in the way of acting. It's another way of saying what Jesus said, you deny yourself. You, don't, you seek to lose yourself for my sake in the gospel. You know, if I would have just always done what I felt like doing all the time, I would have never lasted 40 years in the same church. Because there were some Sunday mornings, not many, but I confess there were some Sunday mornings that the alarm rang and I didn't feel like going to church. I felt like picking up the phone beside the bed and calling my associate minister, Dave Stone, and say, Dave, you've always wanted a chance to preach more. You've got a chance in about an hour and a half. Good luck. Well, but I never did. You know why? Because I'm commanded in the Bible, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I'm commanded to go to church. I don't just do what I feel like doing. I, I'm to deny self and follow Jesus. And those mornings when I went to church feeling like that, I didn't feel like greeting anybody. Just go in the office and wait until it's time to preach. But I went ahead and shook hands and smiled to people. You know why? Because the Bible commands me, be kind one to another. And when the service started, I didn't feel like singing. How many times are you going to sing that praise chorus over and over again? I'm getting tired of hearing that. You know? But I went ahead and sang because I'm commanded in the scripture, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And those mornings, I didn't feel like preaching. Just one time in 40 years, I would have liked to have got in the pulpit and looked back at some of my people the way they looked at me for 40 years. But I never did. You know why? Because I'm commanded in Scripture, preach the word in season and out of season. You know what I discovered? When I went to church when I didn't feel like it, and greeted people and sang when I didn't feel like it and preached when I didn't feel like it, by 2.30 in the afternoon, I felt a whole lot better than if I'd stayed in bed. If you act the way you wish you felt, you'll eventually feel the way you act. If you're going to follow me, you deny the carnal desires and you take up your cross and you'll find yourself, said Jesus. Now, we not only deny carnal desires to follow Christ, the radical faith also denies intellectual pride. Remember Jesus saying, unless you humble yourself and become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. I want to talk just for a second to those of you who have keen minds. Don't raise your hand. Uh, but you know who you are. You went through school. You took pride in your grades. You have a high IQ. You like to be thought of as learned and knowledgeable, well-read. 
To follow Jesus means you swallow your intellectual pride and you humbly accept the teachings of the Bible by faith like a little child. Now, you don't have to commit intellectual suicide. Some of the smartest people in the world have been followers of Jesus. All the way from the Apostle Paul to Augustine to C.S. Lewis, Charles Colson, Lee Strobel, and others. The Bible says we're to love God with all our minds. However, if you follow Jesus exclusively and you believe in the teachings of the Bible, you accept the story of creation, no matter how smart you are, the intellectual elite will never include you in their inner circle. They will keep you on the outside because they want a scientific, rational explanation for everything. I'm convinced that one of the reasons there's so much attention right now on whether there are aliens in outer space, we're searching for some explanation of life on this planet without God. The Bible says, in his pride, man has no room for God. Just a couple of years ago, while I was traveling, I was in South Dakota, and I was near Keystone, South Dakota, and I visited Mount Rushmore. Uh, we've got a picture here, here of Mount Rushmore on the screen here just a second. Uh, how many of you have been to, to Mount Rushmore? Pretty impressive to look up there and see the faces of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln carved out of that granite wall. But let me give you a clue for if you've never been there of not what not to do. When you're looking up at those carved faces, do not nudge a stranger beside you and ask did, did somebody carve those faces out of the wall? Or is that the result of millions of years of weathering? They'll look at you like you're an imbecile. You know why? Because we instinctively know the difference between deliberate design and random results. And that's not a random result. That's a deliberate design. Instinctively, we know that. Let me ask you a question. What's more complex, those faces etched in stone or the face of a newborn baby that's alive with eyes that blink and ears that hear and a mouth that suckles and a neck that turns? How can anybody look at a little baby and say that's a random result? That's the result of millions of years of evolution. No, no. That's deliberate design. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I used that example a couple of years ago to a large church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it just so happened that visiting that morning was an atheist professor that attended with her family. And when I said, what's more complex, those faces etched in stone or the face of a living little baby, her phone clicked with a text message. She opened it up and there was a picture of a little baby born to her niece. She came up afterward and said, I don't know what's going on. I'm staying for the second service. <laughs> 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, verse 20 asks, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And I don't care how intelligent you are. If you accept the basic preaching of the gospel, the world's going to consider you a fool, a radical, but you deny intellectual pride to follow Jesus. 
One other thing, a radical faith denies worldly ambitions to follow Jesus. The world measures your worth primarily by two criteria. One is if you have a lot of possessions. If you live in a spacious house in a gated community and you drive a high-end car and you take elaborate vacations and you have an impressive portfolio, the world would label you a success. Or the world will consider you of value, even if you're not rich, by your achievement. You don't have to be wealthy, but if you're the beauty queen, you're the star player, you're the winner of the political uh, race, you're considered a success. But Jesus asks... A telling question here in verse 25 of Luke 9. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his very self? What good is it? If you've got billions or you're the CEO and when you die, you leave the world without Christ and without eternal life. Jesus asked, Don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth. Moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal it. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break through and steal. Where your treasure is, that will your heart be also. And when Christian people catch on to the radical nature of Jesus' invitation, I don't mean just people who attend church. I'm talking about people who deep down in their gut understand what this world is all about. They're willing to to give up all worldly ambition to follow wherever Jesus Christ leads. The Apostle Paul had all kinds of ambition, but he said, now I consider those things to be rubbish. I consider them to be trash compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. We have two young women from our church who grew up in fairly well-to-do homes. They had the best of education. They had keen minds. They married Christian young men and they've spent the last 10 years of their lives in Indonesia trying to reach Muslim people with the gospel. They're in territory that is 99% Muslim. And their peers from college look at them and say, what happened to them? They could have been doctors. They could have been entrepreneurs. They could have been lawyers. They could have been living in luxury in the United States. Why are they doing that? It seems to them it's foolish. It's radical. But Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, wrote in his diary before he died, he is no fool who exchanges that which he cannot keep for that which he can never lose. I think God wouldn't call them foolish. I think he'd call them faithful. Ever since I retired from located ministry nine years ago, I conduct uh, mentoring retreats once a month for young preachers. And about eight years ago, a young man came to one of my retreats named Nabil Qureshi. Uh, one of the sharper young men you'd ever want to meet. Nabil's parents immigrated to the United States from Pakistan. So Nabil grew up a devout Muslim. And he decided he wanted to be a doctor at the top of his class in med school. But his senior year in med school, he had a roommate who was a radical, outspoken Christian. And his roommate began to challenge him about the Christian faith. And Nabil got angry and decided he was going to study the Bible to show his roommate where the Bible was full of errors. But the more he read the Bible, the more impressed he was with the message of the gospel and the logic of it compared to the Koran. 
And the more he studied about Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the pure life of Jesus, the more impressed he was with Jesus in contrast with Muhammad. And he really churned, could this New Testament message be true? Now, Muslim people put a lot of stake in dreams. And so he prayed to God that if Jesus were really the Messiah, that he would reveal himself to him in a special dream. And one night, Nabil had a very vivid dream in which he saw this narrow archway, a door, and he could look through on the other side of the door, and there in the bright light was a big banquet, and he could see his roommate and some of his friends sitting at this table with all kind of food, but they were not eating, they were waiting. And he told his roommate the next day his dream. And his roommate said, that's easy to interpret. The narrow door is Jesus Christ. That's the way you enter in. And we're at the banquet not eating because we're waiting for you. Well, Nabil gave his life to Jesus Christ, was baptized into Christ. When he did, his parents renounced him. His sister renounced him. All his Muslim friends renounced him. The, 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 The religion that he had loved growing up as a boy, he had to give up. His whole life was dramatically different. But he was so on fire that he wanted to share this newfound faith with his Muslim friends, that he and his roommate went to a Muslim convention in Detroit. Now, if you know anything about the Dearborn, Detroit area, uh, there are all thousands of Muslims there, and there were thousands of Muslims at this Muslim convention. And, and Nabil and his roommate just wore a T-shirt that said, Ask me about Jesus, and carried a Bible. And some would come up and try to get angry with them, but they tried to remain calm, and they were able to talk in a reasonable way with some. But maybe you read about this in the newspaper several years ago. Nabil Qureshi and his roommate in the United States of America were arrested for disturbing the peace because they were talking about Jesus at a Muslim convention. And they put Nabil at one end of a row of cells. Each cell had a prisoner. And they separated him from his roommate. They put his roommate at the other end. And Nabil said, there it was late at night. I was feeling so sorry for myself. I had given up all to follow Jesus Christ. I had been bold enough to go to this convention to try to talk to my Muslim friends. And I get arrested. What possible good can I do here in prison? He said, I was having a pity party. When all of a sudden, I remembered the story of Paul and Silas in prison in Acts 16. And he said, they weren't having a pity party. They sang praises and they prayed and they converted the jailer said, maybe God has a purpose for me here in jail. Maybe some of these prisoners don't know about the Lord. So he called out to his roommate on the other end. And he said, hey, Jeff, why are you in jail? Jeff said, I don't know. Why are you in jail? And Nabil said, I'm in jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his roommate called on and said, really, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And they began to have a dialogue back and forth as he shared the gospel message. And you know what happened? At midnight, there was an earthquake. And every prison cell came open. And the jailer came in. No, I'm just, I don't have it. It didn't happen that way. I don't have a dramatic way to end this story. Nabil says there was one prisoner that was impacted. But you know, Nabil has written a book called Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. And now he's a part of Ravi Zacharias' team going around the country, giving apologetic reasons for believing in Jesus Christ. If Nabil Qureshi can give up his parents and his family and his friends and his career and his past to follow Jesus, is it really too much for the Lord to ask us to become radical Christians, to believe in him exclusively, 
to deny our carnal desires, our intellectual pride, and our worldly ambitions, and to surrender and say, Lord, wherever you lead, I will follow. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I'm going to be ashamed of you when the Son of Man comes in his glory. But if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Thank you.